Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we are here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Thank you so much. I have just fallen in love with your pastor and his wife and their whole family. And last night they were so wonderful and they were telling me all the great things about all of you. And, and, but also they told me all the dirt. So if you're not nice to me, I'm gonna post it all online when I leave, okay? So just remember, you're a little bit hostage this morning. So, but no, really, you guys are a very, very special church and a very special people. And that came through as Sean and Cameron have been telling me about you and as uh, Mark and Ginger were telling me about you. And so I just want you to know, LifePoint, that when they invited me to come and speak here several months ago, I began praying for you, not knowing who you are, not knowing what you just walked out of this week or this morning, but I want you to know that the Lord did. He knew every single one of you. He knew what you're dealing with. He knows every intricate detail of your life and you matter to him today. And so I think the message that he taught me and gave me to give to you was as much for me as it is for you this morning. And so I'm really excited. I grew up in the church, as Mark said. I have literally been in church since I was a baby. I don't remember anything other than church. I'm just, you know, a church girl at heart. And so how many of you were like me? You were in the 80s in the kids' ministry. Any, any of y'all grow up in the church? And yes, there you are. So you're, you're familiar with felt board Jesus. Do you remember? Yeah, if you grew up, we had felt boards and you would stick up, you know, Peter, James, and John in the sailboat and inevitably one of them would fall off the felt board and you know, we would redeem them and put them back on the felt board. And so this is how I grew up hearing and learning about Jesus. And I always loved learning about the disciples because I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to be a disciple? And I was so dumb. I didn't know I was a disciple, you know, I was just this little kid just learning and I just didn't even know that that's what I was doing. And so today, as we approach God's word, I want us to approach it almost from a childlike position of a disciple learning and growing. And I wanna ask you this question. If you were like in that childlike place in your heart and Jesus literally showed up right here and he said, I'm just gonna spend the day and one by one you can come and ask me anything. What would you ask Jesus today? Most of us would probably ask about the future. What's gonna happen? When am I gonna die? How am I gonna die? You might ask, when am I gonna get married? When am I going to get a job that I love? Lord, when are you just gonna give me the Powerball numbers? You know I'll tithe, I'm good for it. Lord, these children I prayed for, when are they going to move out? What would you ask him today? Because brothers and sisters, you are disciples. 
And a disciple would walk with a rabbi, the teacher, and their job was literally to ask all the questions that they had. Rabbi, teach us this. Rabbi, teach us that. For many of us, we would, we would you know what our question would be? Hey, Jesus, why did you let me go through that? Why did that thing I went through that destroyed me or destroyed my marriage or took my health or took my child, why did you allow that? How was that good? What would you ask him today? Well, we can see sometimes in scripture that God is a mystery, and then other times things seem very black and white. And so there's this one time in scripture, it's a black and white moment, where the disciples actually come to Jesus, and it's recorded, and they ask him something very specific. And this is captured in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 11, 1. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, So he's off somewhere praying. And when he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Rabbi, teach us to pray. Jesus didn't need anyone to teach him how to pray. Like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word dwelt among us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the word, from the beginning was here. He did not need a rabbi, a parent, to teach him how to pray. He embodied all of it. But we do. We need a teacher to teach us how to pray. Not just what to pray for, but just a guide. How do we do this? Because does anybody else sometimes just feel lost in their prayer life? Like, I'm really good at Bible study. I love Bible study. I am a super nerd. Y'all don't even know. My husband's not here to amen loudly. Um, But I am. I'm a super nerd. So I'm going to have a journal and a highlighter and a pen and and all my books. and, And I am good at that. But when it comes to praying, to getting in the quiet and sitting, that is a place that I truly wrestle and struggle And I have friends who are just prayer warriors. And I go to them and I'm like, teach me how to pray. And that is okay to go to godly people, godly men and women who you know, they've been through a thing. They've been through a tough spot in marriage. And so you say, how did you make it? How did you get through? We can be each other's modern rabbis. We're disciples on a path, we're learning, we need to share with one another. So so when Jesus goes to teach them how to pray, it's part of who he is. It's the fluidity of his life. But for us, we need somebody to show us how. And, And so there is an incredible example found nestled in the Old Testament of just the perfect example of how we can approach God. And I wanna invite you, if you have your Bible or your phone and your Bible app, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter one. 1 Samuel chapter one, we're gonna read verses one through seven together. And we're gonna see the example of a prayer who we can follow their example. And it says, there was a certain man from Rathayim, a Rufite from the hill country of Ephraim, 
Um, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. I feel like you should clap because I got through all those Hebrew words. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks. I made every bit of it up. Um, He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were the priests of the Lord. And whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Panina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Everybody say year after year. Year. Year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and she would not eat. So here's what's happening. In the Israelite um, tradition and custom, the Lord had given them a commandment in, in Leviticus, and they had to go to their tabernacle, because at this point in the history of the Old Testament, they did not have a temple for the Lord. It was just kind of a makeshift tabernacle in the desert. And, and so all the people once a year were required to go and make sacrifices for the atonement of their sins. And so the families would all gather in this place in Shiloh where this makeshift tabernacle had been set up and they would make these sacrifices. And and, and these people were mostly vegetarians. So the time that they got to truly feast on, on meat, the good meat, was this one time a year. And so they were allowed to make sacrifices. And when the sacrifice was made, some of the meat they got to cook and eat and have these feasts. And so here this family is coming in obedience. They are devout, they are faithful to the Lord. And they're showing up this year after year making this sacrifice. And here we see this picture of this man named Elkanah. And we know he has two wives, which the Lord was adamantly against. God was not like, yay, polygamy. He was like, boo, polygamy. Like who wants more than one wife? Nobody, okay? And so why would they take on two wives? Well, because a woman's role, her whole existence was preserve the lineage, which means create a son. That was it. That was her whole purpose and her whole worth. And Hannah could not do that. She could not have a baby. And so often in order to preserve the lineage of the family, they would bring on a handmaid, a handservant, a sister wife, a panina, and panina would have children. And when you go in and you read in history, you find out that this had probably gone on more than a decade, that this family would travel year after year and come to Shiloh and make their sacrifices And Hannah, with the barren womb, would have to sit and watch her husband's wife and all the children and all the joy that that brought. And she was broken, completely broken. 
The irony is that the name Hannah actually means grace, God's grace. It also means favor, God's favor. And so you've got Hannah, the favored by God. And then it says this weird little verse, this little, this little passage in one of the verses, and it says that Elkanah showed her some kind of a, a favoritism in the way that he treated her. In some translations, it says he gave her a double portion of the food, but most translations more accurately say some sort of special provision was given to Hannah because he loved her. She was the love of his life. Panina was fruitful, but she was not favored. And Hannah was favored by her husband, but she felt forsaken and forgotten by her God. That's a tough place to be when you're required to come and worship, isn't it? 1 Samuel 1.6 tells us that the Lord had closed her womb and her rival, Panina, kept provoking Hannah in order to irritate her. Kept provoking Hannah. Now this kind of sounds like childish, a little bitty petty jealousy, but, but our translations really fail to dig out what this actually means. The Hebrew language is not a one word translation language, which that means that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so when we are trying to ascribe English translation we are giving it the poorest set of words. We're doing our best to come up with, how do we sum this up? Because the Hebrew definition is like this long, and we're trying to make it this long. We're, we're trying to shorten that up. So the Hebrew, where it says that Panina kept provoking Hannah, it actually says in the Hebrew, the word is, she was provoking her sore. S-O-R-E, like a wound. She was poking at her open wound. This is like Hannah has a dagger through her heart. She wants children and she cannot have children. This is a dagger through her heart, spiritually, physically, emotionally. And Panina would just go turn it just a little bit every year. And worse yet, she did it in the house of worship. The next part of that phrase that says she provoked her to, in order to irritate her, the Hebrew language says, no, 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 no. That means it caused her to thunder internally, like violently rage against the way this woman was treating her. Hannah had all of this going on in her heart. Her heart is violently flipping inside of her chest, her broken heart with a dagger in it that she feels like the Lord put there and Panina is there just to turn it just a little bit. That's a little more than irritation, isn't it? I would imagine that year after year, as this yearly sacrifice approached, I would imagine that Hannah was completely in a state of dread over going to Shiloh. 
like, oh gosh, it's coming in 30 days. It's almost here. She was constantly thinking about it, thinking about the circumstances, thinking about how this is all gonna go down and how she is, she probably didn't even wanna go make sacrifices to a God who would not give her her heart's desire because she was human. She was obedient and she went year after year. And I don't know if you have that thing in your family, maybe even this hits a little close to home. Maybe it's family gatherings because there's people in the family that, that have stuck a dagger in your heart. And so as like maybe holidays approach, that you begin to feel anxiety creeping up and you go from like a natural and then all of a sudden by Christmas, your shoulders are like this, you know? You're just in there just preparing the meal like this because the stress and the anxiety is overwhelming. The joy is gone. It's all obligatory. You're just in the moment, in the actions, hoping it passes. Worry sneaks in like that and it takes us prisoner. And we can begin worrying ourselves to death, our spirits to death, our joy to death, our holidays to death, all the good things we can literally kill when we take on the posture of worry, worry, worry. I think Hannah was in that place year after year of just overcome with worry. And I believe that the Lord has taught me in my life, and many of you know this truth, it's that you can be a worrier or you can be a warrior. You can be a worrier or you can be a warrior. You can choose year after year to give in to the worry and succumb to it and be beaten down, or you can decide, I can't do this anymore. I gotta do something different. This isn't working. Jesus told us what to do with worry. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, um, he actually asked a question. He said, can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? Can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? That's a question from Jesus. He was asking his followers then and he's asking us today, can it? You and I know the answer is no. We know that stress is like the leading cause of, of heart attacks among us. Have you experienced it? How many of us have to take a pill every day? Maybe several times a day. And I'm not anti that. There are times when we need to. But I also think we have to do some work on our part. And we gotta do things different sometimes. And when the old pattern isn't working anymore, we gotta do something new. We have to reflect, what is all this worry adding to my life? Nothing, it is robbing me day after day, maybe year after year. I wanted to define worry. Worry is a state of anxiety over actual or potential problems, but worry sometimes 
divulges into desperation. And desperation is when hopelessness overtakes the problem. Worry, I'm worried about the problem. I'm worried about the potential of the problem. Desperation is the next level of now I think the problem is hopeless. There's no hope. There's no hope. My question to you today is what are you desperate for? What is the thing that you feel like I am struggling to find hope around this thing? Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's relational. What is the thing you can't figure your way out of? You can't hustle enough to make it happen. You can't strive enough. You can't do enough to make this thing come to pass. What are you desperate for? And I invite you uh, to do what I think the Lord is inviting us to do with our worries and get desperate before the Lord. Just bring him the worry. Some of us don't even want to because we've held on to it so long, it actually has a hold on us. And we are afraid, what are we gonna be if we let this thing go? What is God gonna require of us? Is he gonna require me to change things, forgive people, confess something, humble myself, ask for help? What is it? That is literally between your heart that is thundering inside of your chest. Your irritable heart, that's between it and God. We have to be desperate before the Lord. Desperation is desiring an outcome that will require an otherworldly supernatural intervention to achieve. When we are desperate, it means we can no longer do it ourselves. We don't have what it takes and we know it. We've come to the end of what we can do. This is going to require a supernatural move of God. Dare we say a miracle? God, we need a miracle for this thing to change. What are you desperate for today, church? I wanna show you what Hannah did. I want you to continue reading with me in 1 Samuel 9, excuse me, 1 Samuel 1, 9 through 20. We're gonna see what Hannah decides to do this year. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple and in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, the priest observed her mouth 
And Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long will you keep getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, she replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. And early the next morning, they rose and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their home at Ramah. And Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When she calls on God at the beginning of this prayer, she's vowing to God. This is before Eli recognizes that she's doing this quiet, silent prayer. And, and, and she's standing there in her anguish and she's praying to the God and she calls him Lord Almighty. But when you translate it to the Hebrew, this is the first time in scripture that we actually see someone call God uh, the God of angel armies. Have you heard that term before? Lord of hosts. The battle belongs to the Lord is what she is saying. I am calling on the God to war for me. My God who is going to fight my battles for me because I just can't do it myself anymore. This woman whose whole worth is wrapped up in whether or not she can provide a son, provides a guide for us for how to pray. First, we gotta be desperate. Second of all, we gotta recognize who we are talking to. He is Lord Almighty. There is nothing our God cannot do. The battle belongs to him. She recognized that as she approached the Lord. She knew who she was and she knew who he was. And God filled her heart with peace and joy before he fulfilled her prayer request. The priest comes in and thinks, okay, the families have made their sacrifices, they've all been feasting and eating and she's drunk. That's why she is standing and moving her lips silently. Also because this is the first time in all of scripture anyone is recorded inside of the tabernacle praying a personal prayer to God. This is the first recording of a personal prayer inside the house of worship. So Eli didn't even recognize that she was praying. He thought, oh great, we got another drunk wife. She wasn't. She was desperate. She was calling on God. She didn't want her husband to do it for her. She didn't want her pastor, her priest to do it for her. She knew she had to talk to God herself.
Prayer is what transforms us from a worrier into a warrior. It's praying. It is the act of humbly bowing before God and recognizing you are God, I am not. You can do this if you choose to. Now please give me the faith to trust your decision. That's the hardest prayer you are ever going to pray, friends. Help me trust you when you give me the sun. But oh God, help me trust you when you don't. Hannah gets her son. We're not always gonna get the thing we're begging him for. He is not our genie in a bottle. Even when we're faithful, even when we give, this is the walk and the path of faith. First Peter 5, 7 says that we can cast our anxiety on him because he cares for us. We can literally cast it, throw it at him. A few years ago, I was going through an incredible, incredible hurt, and it was inside my church that I had served at for two decades. I had given my entire adult life to this church, and it was a literal ripping out of my heart from within, and I was not doing well. And, and I, I ended up, I was just struggling so desperately in anxiety. I ended up in the hospital. I was hospitalized. And uh, the doctors came in and they did a bunch of tests. And they said, Jessica, we need to do an endoscopy, the camera down the throat. And so I did the endoscopy. And the doctor came to my room in recovery. The doctor, not a nurse, the doctor. And he, he was so gentle and tender with me. And he held my hand and he patted me. And I was like, this is it. You know, this is not normal. And he said... Um, I have never in my entire career seen anyone as sick as you are. He said, you are fully ulcerated. He said, girl, you have ulcers from the top of your throat to the bottom of your esophagus and your whole stomach lining. The whole stomach lining is ulcers. And he said, I have biopsied you in two places for cancer. I was 38 years old. And I thought, this is it. This is it. And he said, I've called these orders in. The biopsies will be back quickly. And they were. And he called me himself. And he said, Jessica, I need to apologize for scaring you. He said, your biopsy was fine. You don't have any infection. You don't have any disease. You do not have cancer. And I said, what do I have? And he said, you have stress. And I was like, well, tell me it's infection because then I can take a pill. Tell me it's something that I can go get treated for. Give me an IV. Don't tell me I have to change my head and my heart. Don't tell me that. That's too hard. And that's what it was. 
It took me three years to physically and spiritually and emotionally heal. Three years. And what started the healing process for me was I had these girlfriends who I would call on and they're all like in ministry. They're either they're in full-time ministry as pastors or they're pastor's wives and their pastor's wives are in full-time ministry. Just so you know, they are. Uh, right, Ginger? You're in full-time ministry. <laughs> and I called them and I said, I need y'all to come and we need to pray once a week at my house because I'm afraid I'm going to burn something to the ground. Like I'm angry. Like that heart inside my chest that was thundering and revolting, I, I was in the flesh. Like I, I needed to like do something and it was gonna be destructive. And so these women who knew my story and not very many people did I trust with that story at that time, uh, they came to my house and, and every Thursday night for weeks and months, they showed up at my house with their Bibles in hand. This was not fellowship. This was not sit around and talk and catch up about the kids and life. They would literally walk in my living room and we would sit on my floor and I had a round ottoman and we would get around that ottoman and we would pray for hours, hours. We would pray over the situation. We would pray over what was going on with me. We began praying over what was going on in their lives, their ministries, their families. We just prayed the paint off the walls. You know what I mean? Like we prayed like that for months and months and months. And about a year later, one of my best friends in this group, she had never been married. She had been in full-time ministry and kind of lived this super, very cool life of like adventure for the Lord. She was a missionary and been to 16 countries and never been married. And the Lord brings her this man and they, they're engaged to be married. She's 40 years old. So we're making a big deal about it, right? And so we, we go on this kind of girls weekend to buy her wedding dress and our bridesmaids dresses because they're gonna have a huge wedding. And we, we go and we're shopping for the dresses and we all find these beautiful dresses that we love. And we go up to, uh, to check out and pay for the dresses and, and the, the cashier who was precious and she said, are any of you in the military? Because we offer a military discount. And without a bit of reverence on my part, I said, yes, we are in the Lord's army. We got a discount. <laughs> she, she was a church girl and she was like, girl, I know what you mean and I'm gonna give it to you for that. Just because she's like, that's a real thing. That is a real thing. And we got that discount. But those problems we were praying for, not all of them got resolved in the way, in the, the way that we were hoping and praying for the bow to get tied on top of it. That's not what the Lord did in every one of our circumstances. For the most part, that's not what he did in a lot of the circumstances. But I'm gonna tell you what I learned about myself in that is that I had made prayer my last resort. And what that did for me was that shifted things inside of my heart and my life. And I realized that prayer has got to be my first response, not my last resort. We're gonna pray about it. 
If I tell you, if I'm texting you or I tell you I'm praying for you over, you're sharing something with me that's going on in your life and I say I am praying for you, those are not empty words. And listen, church, we, we cannot, we cannot use those words in an empty way. Pray for one another. Pray for one another. And then follow up with one another. I'm praying for you. How did that thing turn out? How did that job interview, how did that college weekend go? How did it go? I'm praying for you. Because I love you. And God Almighty is battling for you. He is working it out for your good and his glory. I'm praying for you. We need to be giving each other courage and just love and hope in telling one another, I am praying for you and I care. In 2005, I got married, and um, Brad and I spent the first few weeks as normal, you know, honeymooners, and super in love. We met in church, and we just fell in love. I fell in love with him, and then I chased him and hunted him like prey until he subdued and submitted, and I got him. And so um, we got married, and everything was perfect, right? But there was a piece of my life that wasn't perfect. Uh, my parents who had raised me in church and they loved Jesus uh, were just huge in my life. That was just everything. But my dad, who was a police officer, he had really succumbed to some alcohol abuse uh, later in, in my um, adolescence and early adulthood. And so this was a thing we were praying for fervently. It was like the Lord would help my dad bring him to repentance, like go to rehab, get better. Like let's turn this thing around. And we, that's what we prayed for year after year. And so seven weeks, into my little fairy tale marriage, my dad commits suicide. Devastated us. I mean, complete devastation. At one point, um, we, we saw a grief counselor and the grief counselor, uh, because my husband kept saying, Jessica's just not the same, and the grief counselor said, the woman you married died. She's not here anymore that she's gonna have to figure her new way forward and you're gonna have to learn this new version of who she is. And that's also just a life lesson of that's how marriage works, right? If you've been married a long time, that's it. There are just cycles that we are just constantly learning and growing and parts of us are dying off and new parts are being born. And it was devastating and hard and we rebuilt and we really did just seven short weeks of marriage. I was a completely different human being after that suicide. And so three years into our marriage, things are good, things are better, you know, like we're in it, we're deciding that we're really gonna do this now, you know? Um, and, and so we thought, okay, we're gonna have a baby. Let's try to have a baby. And so we decide to try to have a baby and guess what? First try, I'm pregnant. And I thought, Lord, this is it. This is like how you are blessing me and rewarding me. I was faithful to you during my whole dad's, all that ordeal. I was faithful following it. I've been faithful using the testimony and the story. I've been faithful with that. My husband's been faithful. We've been faithful to each other, Lord. Like this, it just felt like this was a reward from the Lord. And 
then we found out we were having twins. And so it felt like this double blessing, right? It was like, like Hannah being favored by God and favored by her husband, the double portion of blessing or, or whatever. That's what it felt like to me. I was like, oh my gosh, like the Lord is giving us like a double portion of his blessing. And there was not pride around that. Like that was in complete humility that I was like, oh my gosh, like God's doing this thing and I can't believe it. And so it was the day before Thanksgiving and we were going in for another sonogram because when you're having twins, you have lots of sonograms. And so we're going in for the sonogram and we're all excited and, and in the room, you know, you got the little, the person doing the sonogram and the doctor comes in to talk to us for a minute and the room just gets quiet. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know exactly what I mean. The hush that comes when that little wand is on your belly and you're waiting for the of heartbeats and it's silent. And we could see the two little babies and we couldn't hear a thing and we could no longer see their little hearts beating. And we lost our twins. And I was like, that's not the deal. That is not the deal we made. I was faithful, I did what I was supposed to do. This is not the deal. And I was mad. I never really went through that with my dad's suicide because I was so angry with my dad when he was alive. But that whole anger didn't come out. It came out during that, that grief over my twins. I was angry with the Lord. And I relate to the way Hannah came to him in desperation of her heart. Like we had a deal And the Lord, he gave Hannah a baby. And eventually, after a very long time and a battle with fertility or infertility, he gave us our Emory Noel. And we are so grateful. And that was it though. That was the one child my body was allowed to have and to hold. That was it. She was it. And the thing that got me through that, because when I casted that on the Lord, my anger on the Lord, he wasn't mad at me. He didn't punish me. He didn't put me in time out. He didn't rebuke me. He loved me. My heart and my hurt, even my fury was completely safe with him. And he took me to the Garden of Gethsemane time after time. Because the disciples had said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so every day Jesus was showing them how to pray. He would go off by himself. He would get up early in the morning. And at the last day of his life on this earth, he invited them into the garden and he said, come and pray with me through the watches of the night. Come and pray with me. And they couldn't, they couldn't keep their eyes open. 
They fell asleep. And so they missed it when Jesus cried out to God in his anguish and he sweat drops of blood out of his anguish and his heart was turning inside of his chest like thunder. And he cried out to God and he said these words, may your will be done. He asked God first, remove this cup, make another way, do it differently, please. And then he settled his heart with those words, may your will be done. Those are the ones that are hard to pray. That's the one that's hard to pray in the hospital waiting room. When the acceptance letter says you're rejected, no. Okay, Lord, your will be done. You're still battling for me. You're still good. You are still for me. What Hannah does in the end, after she goes away, she leaves the place of the sacrifices at Shiloh and she goes home and the Lord blesses her with a son. After a couple years, she weans him at home. This was the custom of their day. When she's able to kind of take the baby with her, he's maybe about three, and they go and they travel again. She returns to make sacrifices with her family. And she goes back into that sanctuary and she praises God. In 2 Samuel chapter one, it says, and then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. There is no rock like our God, brothers and sisters. There's just not. He is it. He is everything. And whether he gives you the thing that you're begging for or he gives you something different, he will always give you himself to get you through. Always. Even if you have to go the path of pain, just like Jesus Christ did. His own son had to go the path of pain and suffering to be delivered to him. He will deliver us to himself, whether it's through incredible, awesome circumstances or it's through fire. He is it. What I love about this story is that now in the Jewish holiday, the Jewish calendar, you might recognize this yearly sacrifice if you know anything about the Jewish culture because every year they honor the same sacrifice and it's called Rosh Hoshanah on the Jewish calendar and it really represents the Jewish New Year. And Rosh Hoshanah is actually next weekend. It begins on September the 25th, and, and there's 10 days between the high holidays of Rosh Hoshanah and Yom Kippur, the high holidays in the Jewish calendar. And in those 10 days, that is their season of atonement. And I thought, how crazy that the Lord wanted us to see this, because you know what 
the Jewish people stand and read on the first day of Rosh Hashanah? They read 1 Samuel 1 and 2. They stand and they remember Hannah. The fact that her sacrifice to the Lord was just her praise. That's what kicks off their new year. And every time the school year starts in the fall, someone said that that when the school year starts, that's kind of our second new year of every year because everybody goes back to the gym and we get back on a schedule and everything kind of, small groups start and churches, you know, redo, everything starts in the fall. So though we are not Jewish and we're not observing Rosh Hashanah, we can observe the fact that like take on a new mindset. This is like a new year for you right now. And you can bring your sacrifice of praise to the Lord. You can bring your sacrifice of anxiety and cast it on Him. He is good for it. He will guide you through. He will bring you prayer partners and friends that will love you. Like Sean prayed over me this morning and I sat and she stood and she cried and her tears went into my hair. I had wet hair from her tears. Somebody might need to wet your head with their tears. That's how we need to pray with one another and for one another. You guys are about to begin a new series here called Crave next Sunday, and it's gonna be about God's grace. How many of you just need to be reminded that He is good and His grace is still available in this dark, hard world? Don't miss this as your church begins to open God's word and dig out His grace, because His grace is sufficient for you. This week, if you wanna read something, go in and read 1 Samuel chapter two. Read the praise of Hannah and ask God to give you a heart like that. I wanna pray for you, church. Father, you are so good. Your truth is timeless. You work all things together for your good, for our good and for your glory, Lord. I pray for this church. I pray for LifePoint. All the people here, maybe they're, this is their first time here, Lord, or maybe they've been here for 30 years. Lord, you have something very personal that you wanted them to hear today. Lord, I pray that they take it. I pray that the, the seed that's planted, Lord, I pray that you water that. I pray that you grow whatever fruit is supposed to come out of that, God. I pray your blessing as they move forward and they begin to focus on a series about your grace, Lord. I pray that you pour out your grace on them and I pray that they remember to return to you with their prayers and their petitions and their praise all the days of their life, Lord. Help them to walk a faithful path when you give them the thing they're praying for and when you don't. Give them you, Father. Just let them want more of you. God, thank you. Thank you for the example of Hannah. I thank you for her suffering because it was a path for my own. I thank you, Lord, for the people that go before us to help us make our way always back to you. I ask your blessing over this church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.